1: At the height of my criminal activity, I stole $160,000 every single week. Tax return identity theft. That's right. You ever wonder why your returns are delayed every single year and who was responsible for that? Look no further than the SOB talking to you right now. I got to where I could file a return once every six minutes. I would file returns from Sunday through Wednesday. Thursday, I would take a road trip, plot out a map of ATMs, Friday and Saturday cash out, turns out that $150,000 will fit in that type of backpack that you see thrown over the shoulders of kids as they go to and from high school and college. So I had $150,000 in a backpack. I would come home to Charleston, South Carolina. I had a spare bedroom. I would open up the door, chuck the backpack in. And I did that for 10 months out of every single year. So, Brett, how did you do that? Well, I'll tell you what. Let's give everyone a tutorial on tax return identity theft when I was committing it. That's right. Let's make some money. Now, before we begin, there's a few things we need to know. First, we will be using the California Death Index. Access is free online. It comes with a person's name, the DOB, date of birth, the DOD, date of death, social security number, mother's maiden name, place of birth, and place of death. For fraudulent tax purposes, we only need the name, the date of birth, and the social security number. Quick heads up here. Prior to 1998, the only way the United States government knew if someone was dead was if the family of the deceased filed for a social security death benefit. Social security pays around $212 if the benefit is filed. It's supposed to help with burial expenses. Now filing for that benefit is the only indication the federal government has of knowing if someone is dead. Prior to 1998, the family had to file for the benefit. After 98, the funeral home could file for it, the hospital could file for it. But 1998 and before that, that resulted in many families not filing for that benefit. Why did they not file, Brett? Well, it turns out they were too sad, too distraught. They didn't think it was enough money. They probably said to themselves, $212? Hell, you can't bury a goldfish for $212. So the result, the feds simply don't know that a lot of people are dead. Also, the California State Death Index is a state database. By law, the feds can't cross-reference a state index. The reasoning for that is pretty simple. Those state records, they're not 100% accurate. They're actually living people listed on the California State Death Index. Now, I'm sure you could imagine what kind of clusterfuck that would be if the feds started calling someone dead who ain't. The Fed's inability to cross-reference the Cali Index and then the lack of people filing for that death benefit means that as far as the Feds are concerned, all of those people are still alive. So what we need to do is we need to compile a list of dead people from the California Death Index. Now me, I like using the information of people who would just now be entering into adulthood. I always thought it makes it look like the person filing taxes just entered the workforce and they're so young and so vibrant and alive. So the only thing we need is the name, the social security number, and the date of birth. Nothing else. Next, we need to make sure that no one has filed for that aforementioned death benefit on our list of dead people. For that, we need to fire up the social security death index. That Social Security Death Index is a fairly complete index of everyone the U.S. government knows as dead. Access? Free. Online. You input the person's PII, the dead person's PII, the personal identifying information, into the Social Security Death Index. If a result comes back, the feds know the person is dead and we cannot use them to file taxes. If no results are returned, cha-ching! That's a moneymaker! Yes! That list completed... Next, we need an employer identification number. No, not our own. We're going to use someone else's. After all, we are identity thieves. So, we head over to Google and we look for EIN directories or EIN lookups. Now, me, myself, I was always partial to a site called FreeEresa.com. So, head over there and we start pulling EIN numbers. Now, I don't like using big companies or retailers. I like small, local businesses. And whatever state you're saying the list of dead people live in, that employer needs to be in the same state, hopefully the same city. For example, if you say that Joe Napier, who died in 1997, lives at 122 Cottonwood Lane, Muncie, Indiana, then you need an employer from Muncie, Indiana. And I don't use charities or nonprofits. I just say use small local businesses. It works like a charm. Get yourself a list of 20 or 30 of these EINs and hey, spread the EINs and the dead people out across several states. That way, law enforcement and tax processors can't flag one specific state as potential fraud. Now, for fraudsters, tax season runs from roughly January 15th through October 15th. I've said that before. Yes, filing deadline is April 15th but the feds give two automatic extensions to anyone they owe a refund to. That first extension is mid-August, the second extension mid-October. So committing fraud runs from January through mid-October, 10 months. 10 months that you can make money using people's profiles to steal refunds. I just had to say it again because you know what? I could go cha-ching! Yay! So now we have the list of names and the list of employers. Next, comes the step of figuring out how much each refund should be. And I'm a firm believer of keeping it under $3,000 per return. Why? Well, the IRS doesn't pay as much attention to small-dollar returns, so you get a lot more of them approved. Yes, you can file for a $10,000 refund, but there are some problems with that. First, it's a large amount. It's going to attract attention. Next, Where are you going to have the deposit sent? And yes, you are going to deposit it because only an idiot has a check sent out. So where, pray tell, are you going to have it deposited? Surely not your own bank account. That's just asking for trouble. Don't believe me? Well, head your ass over to irs.gov, that website, and read over some of the indictments. It's a good source to learn fraud. Also, a good source to learn how people get caught. A lot of the folks there actually got money, but they had it deposited to their actual accounts. What do we call those people? Idiots. All the cops had to do was see where the money went and then go knock on a door. Not bright. So, you're either going to have to set up a fake bank account, which is a lot of hard work and stress. I mean, are you going to walk into a bank with a fake driver's license? I don't think so. They got you on camera, all kinds of shit. Of course, you could set it up online using someone's stolen identity. But here's the problem with that. You've got to have a debit card. You've got to have that debit card sent someplace. Well, Brett, I could obviously have the debit card sent to that person's address and then steal it out of their mail. Yes. Yes, you could. Are you brave enough to do that? You know what? I'm going to bet you're not, which means you're going to have to have that debit card sent to an alternate address, a drop address. Well, guess what? To have that card sent to that alternate address, that address needs to be on that victim's credit report. How do you get it on the credit report? Well, guess what? It's not the easiest shit in the world, so you gotta do that too. So are you gonna do all that? I don't think so. Fortunately, there is another way. Prepaid debit cards. Turns out over 40% of all Americans are unbanked. Not to mention all those illegal aliens who cannot get bank accounts. A lot of those people, well, they tend to use prepaid debit cards. They're like virtual bank accounts. You can have your check deposited directly to them or you can have a variety of government benefits sent to them. Like, for example, tax refunds. The only problem is a lot of those cards have daily deposit limits. Those limits tend to be either $2,500 or $3,000 deposit any more than that and there's a fairly decent chance your card will be blocked until you call in and explain things. You don't want that. You don't want any human looking at the cards or the deposits. Why? Well, if you get like me and you're filing a lot of income taxes, when I got to where I could file one again once every six minutes, one return per card, so I would maybe have 200 prepaid debit cards per week. You don't want a human being looking at those So let's take a minute to break down that last statement that I made. In case it hasn't hit you yet, the biggest problem is getting enough deposit instruments so you can make enough money. Now, you can head down to Walmart and buy your ass a bunch of Green Dot debit cards. Sometimes they'll even work. But if you try to buy a couple of hundred Green Dots, people look at you a little funny. Sure, you can take a road trip and buy three to five cards at every location. But that's going to get tired pretty quick. And if you keep going to the same stores, people are going to remember you as that debit card guy. And you might be on camera. Bad, 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 BAD idea. What I found that worked for me was to fire up Google again and search for quote-unquote payroll cards. They are basically prepaid debits, but meant for employees to use at companies they work for. Their paycheck deposited directly to them. If you're an employer, it's normal to order two to three hundred of these things at a time. And they're instant issue. So the employer activates the cards with whatever name he wants attached to them. What do we call that? We call that fucking sweet. Sweeter still is that the payroll card providers will send the cards out to the employers free of charge. So all you gotta do is call up, tell the people you're an employer, give them some SOP story about, well, you know what? I got a chicken farm out here. I got all these illegal immigrants and stuff working over here. I need some way to pay these people because you know what? I ain't gonna carry a bunch of cash and they can't get a check cash because they ain't got no driver's license. Ain't you guys got some cards, some prepaid payroll cards you can send out to me? That's all you got to tell them. And it works like a charm. Hey, you ever notice how none of this has cost any money so far? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I like that kind of stuff too. So now we got everything we need. Now we got to figure out the exact dollar returns. Now you can use payroll software or you can just plug in numbers using the withholding percents of the IRS. We're filing taxes online, so we don't need actual copies of W-2s or anything like that. For online filing, when you do fill out the W-2s, you only need to worry about six fields other than the name and address crap. And those six fields are the Medicare income, federal income, Social Security income, and the federal withholding, Medicare withholding, Social Security withholding. Just those six. Leave everything else blank except for name, address, employer, Addy, E-I-N, social. That's it. And here's the deal. You're likely going to have a lot of prepaid cards from one specific bank. So if you're like me and you file 200 returns a week and 80% of them fund, that means the bank is going to get 160 tax refunds going to a certain set of prepaid cards with deposits very, very similar. Fortunately... Fortunately, the deposits are automated. If a human saw that shit, believe you me, they would think it a bit strange. Not a computer. We like that. We like it when a computer looks at things. So as long as we don't do anything stupid, no one will notice anything about the cards until most of the money is withdrawn. And how much money is that, Brett? Well, for me, okay, I file 200 returns a week. 80% of those returns are accepted and refunds deposited to those. So that's 160 cards close to $2,500 on each card. So let's say it's $2,300 to be fair. $2,300 times 160 equals $368,000 a week. Now not all weeks are like that. The problem being that you always have trouble finding enough cards. But I would routinely withdraw $160,000 a week of the government's money. So. Now, it's filing time. Head on over to the IRS website and see who's there offering free e-file. Now, we aren't going to file state taxes, only federal. Why? Because a lot of tax prep places online will do federal for free, but charge for state filing. And we aren't looking to spend a lot of money here if we can help it. Myself, I always preferred H&R Block and Tax Act true professionals over there who offer quick streamlined tax filing systems. I can file return manually every six minutes. Basically, it's just a 1040-EZ. I'm not going to itemize. I'm not going to claim extra dependents or any of that crap. Just file single, take the standard deduction, rinse, repeat. Recycle the employer info, the earnings info. The only thing that changes is the victim name and the deposit information. Wait for a few days, Check the IRS website to make sure the return was accepted. Then, wait and see when it's scheduled to deposit. Deposit day? Well, if you've got a shitload of cards you want to be prepared. First, funds are going to hit the cards around 3 a.m. of the scheduled date. I, me, I don't like to wait until mid-morning to start withdrawing. I like to start withdrawing just as soon as that money is available. I mean, hey, something could happen. You could sleep until 9 a.m. and then go try to withdraw. Well, by that point, some nosy person at the card company may have looked at it and frozen all your cards, all that money, all that work lost. And here, let me tell you, it's happened to me. So get your ass out of bed. And here's another thing. 160 cards, that's a lot of fucking cards. You're going to need to hit multiple ATMs. You don't want to be out at 3 a.m. in the morning looking for cash machines. So sometime prior to deposit date, you need to drive around and find 10 or 15, maybe 20 of these machines. You actually need to plot a route you're going to take to withdraw currency. Why? Because withdrawing funds from 160 cards takes a lot of fucking time. You don't want to waste more time not knowing where you're going. Now me... I, in my life, I've ran at least two ATM machines out of cash that I still remember. One had $19,000 in it, the other one had $23,000. So please be advised, have multiple machines ready to use. Okay, okay. Some bad news. Those prepaid debits, they do have withdrawal limits. Sometimes those limits may be $400 a day. Sometimes they may be $1,500 a day or even whatever is on the card. If you get some of the low-limit withdrawal cards, then you're going to have to withdraw $400 on them on Friday, then another $400 at 12.01 a.m. Saturday morning, then another $400 at 12.01 Sunday morning, then again on Monday morning. You want to try to get the money out as soon as possible because believe you me, come Monday or Tuesday, someone somewhere is going to know something is going on. And here's my final piece of advice. Please, for the love of God, have something to put the fucking money in. Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast, where we visit the darkest corners of our online lives. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. The United States Secret Service called me the original Internet Godfather. Now, what does it take to get a title like that? 39 felonies, a place on the United States Most Wanted list, an escape from prison, and I built the first organized cybercrime community, Shadow Crew. Shadow Crew was a precursor to today's darknet and darknet markets, and it laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels still operate today. This first season of the Anglerfish podcast tells of my rise and fall as the world's first internet godfather. It's a fascinating story. You'll learn how cybercriminals think, how modern cybercrime came into being, and why it's so successful and hard to stop, and how I was able to turn from a life of crime to one of using the knowledge I acquired as a criminal to help protect others against the type of person I used to be. go to college in Kentucky, Brett. So where I was on, where did I go to college? I was on the seven year program. (laughs) Right. Seven year bachelor degree. That's me. So I started out. So I graduated high school at a place called Dills Combs. When I graduated, I graduated as the top actor and actress in the state. I actually won both awards. Uh,
0: Actress too. Actress too. Well, how'd you manage that? Well,
1: the the thing was, is uh, we were at state competition. We did uh, Neil Simon's "The Good Doctor" was the name of the show. When they gave out the the awards that night, the guy stands up and he was like, "Look, he's like there was no really good female actors, so we're going to give both awards." (laughs) 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 So I got the best actor and actress for uh, that was 1989 was the year I won that and I'm to this day I'm still the only guy in Kentucky who won best actor and actress in the state so I got that and I had a lot of uh, had a lot of scholarships coming out of high school you know for Berea um, Rhodes College a few other things didn't take them because I had found my first girlfriend that Christy girl I told you about and uh, I was just infatuated with her you know that's my story Ken as I've always wanted you know, it's all about love, man. It's uh, that's the most important thing. I don't care about anything else. I just want somebody to love me. <laughs> I, I get
0: it. And and next to religions and life insurance, it's probably the you know one of the greatest uh, intangible markets out there.
1: Oh yeah. So I you know I went to the community college in Hazard, Kentucky. It was called Hazard Community College. And you know I told you uh, the last time we talked that I did a B and E for this baseball card shop, right? Well, I went home and it hit me. That was not the first breaking and entering that I did. Oh no, my friend. You see, I, so I was committing crime under my mom. I branched out on my own. And what I did was, I was at Hazard Community College and I saw all these Apple Macs, you know, the Mac 2 pluses and all that that they had. And I was like, I wonder if I could get one of those and sell it. Well, back then they had that big computer shopper magazine. You remember those? Oh, I remember,
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> before the Internet. That yeah. was it, yeah. So I went through the back of that, and it had several places that would buy used computers. So what happened was is I went to, I was doing theater at that community college. I hid in the stage room, the prop room, until everyone left the college that night, got out, and stole computers. <laughs> From the inside out. They didn't have any alarm system or anything else. And stole a Mac 2, a PC, a laptop, and a, a big dot matrix printer. And uh, that was the first real breaking and entering that I did at that point. And I didn't, I've done so much crime, I didn't even remember it until I went home after talking to you the last time. <laughs> All
0: right, that's so... You you stole these uh, computers and you sold them
1: to this company. So called the company up, told them what I had. They were like, I think it was like fifteen hundred dollars is what they gave me for it. I was like, yes, we'll ship those out. Well, the shipping on the damn stuff was like two hundred dollars. <laughs> so, but yeah, that was uh, that was it. And I I went to that school for um, I was majoring in literature and theater, was what I was majoring in at the time. But uh, yeah, I was I was I was I was just a rogue man. no kidding
0: i'm glad you're i'm glad you're recovering
1: well that's the thing right recovering it's always recovering (laughs) (laughs) all
0: right so where we left off you were you were telling me about the uh of course the uh, the mangy elephant oh yeah (laughs) And, and uh you talked a little bit about some satellite issues uh, right that, right 300 channels as seen on tv
1: exactly TV. so yeah so and that that right there the 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 beanie baby was really the first real cybercrime i committed but what led into this whole thing of the uh, the, the cybercrime structure we see today kind of began with these these satellite cards these programmed cards that were turning on all the channels for people so what was happening was, like I said last time, we were I was doing pirated software. That turned into pirated games and led into mod chips for gaming systems and mod chips for cable systems. And then all of a sudden I'm programming the cards on these 18-inch satellite RCA systems to turn on the channels too. Well, about that same time up in Canada, this judge up there, don't know what he was smoking, but this judge up there, he rules that it was legal for canadian citizens to pirate those satellite dss signals and his logic his entire logic was since rca doesn't sell in canada it's okay for my citizens to pirate that signal (laughs) (laughs) so that led to overnight almost okay not overnight a couple of days but you could go down to best buy you'd buy an rca system for 99 dollars, you'd take it out in the parking lot Rip it open. You'd pull the card out, throw the system. You'd actually just leave the system in the buggy, take the card, program it, ship it to Canada. Five hundred dollars a pop. Ah, yeah. So I started doing that. Had tons of business. I was at that point in time you could sell those cards on eBay. eBay didn't have any rules against it or anything else. So I was selling all that I could on eBay. Had so many orders I couldn't keep up with them all, and the the, the straw that broke the camel's back. This one gentleman from Canada, he sends me an order. He wants 10 cards. Well, I'm not about to go buy 10 systems at Best Buy. So I was sitting there going, you know, he's in Canada. I'm down here. Who the hell is he going to complain to? (laughs) So I was like, yeah, dude, I'll, I'll do your 10 cards. So he sends me a cashier's check. Of course, I cash the cashier's check. I don't send the cards up. And at that point, it occurs to me, I don't need to send any cards. I'll just start stealing all the money that I can. So start doing that, and I, I guess I was bringing in three to $5,000 a week just doing that. Got scared because I was like, that's a lot of money to go into a bank account. Somebody somewhere is going to start looking at me. Yep. So I was like, okay, what I need to do is get a fake driver's license, use that fake driver's license, go down to Fifth Third Bank, open up a bank account in that name, and launder all the money through that. Just withdraw it with the, through the ATM machine. Nobody will ever... Oh, that. no, nobody uh, would see that at all. Yeah, I was i was not very sophisticated. So, <laughs> I was at UK. Of course, you'd think you'd know where to get a fake ID. Not a clue, man, not a clue. So I get online, start looking around. I mean, I spend hours just trying to find where I can find a fake ID. Finally, I find this website. It was ran by this dude that called himself Fake ID Man. <laughs> and he offered all 50 states said they were pristine could not tell the difference between any of them anything else like that so i was like oh that's what i need right there so i sent him two hundred dollars by western union sent him my picture he rips me off yeah oh it made you mad oh dude dude i was i was so pissed i couldn't stand it (laughs) you know i was used to ripping people off not being the victim so i get i get angry but the problem is is that i still need that driver's license that was the issue so I, Yeah, he can he can rip me off all he wants, but I still need a driver's license. So I keep looking around, and I find this website called Counterfeit Library. And that website, the only thing it dealt with, it sold counterfeit degrees. They were coming in and out of Hong Kong. And uh, they had a forum on there that was completely defunct. I mean, no traffic on it whatsoever. That was the only website that dealt with anything at that time that was even marginally related to cybercrime. That was it. If you were looking to commit cyber crimes before that, you had IRC, this internet relay chat thing. So right, right. That's the only thing you had, which was horrible. You didn't know if you were getting ripped off. You couldn't talk to anybody. It was all bullshit. So that was the only real website that was out. I start going to that forum. I'm the first person on the forum, and the only thing I'm doing is complaining. That's it. Just bitching day in, day out. I don't have anything else to do. The next two people, there's a few other people that start trickling in. The two most important people was a guy who went by the screen name of Beelzebub. He was from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. And then there was another guy that went by the screen name of Mr. X, and he was from Los Angeles. So me and Beelzebub got to be really good friends, you know, chatting every day, and I would complain, and he would just kid with me and everything else. After about two weeks of me just constantly complaining, he gets me on ICQ, this messaging service, sends me a message, and I went by the screen name Gollum Fun at that point. And, uh, of course, it's a Lord of the Rings thing, right? (laughs) i was gonna
0: ask you because i i didn't read lord of the rings
1: that's what it was and i'll tell you how stupid that name is when i was selling satellite cards my screen name on ebay and on all these other satellite forums was baggins dad was what it was so i figured if i was going to be engaged in cybercrime I couldn't use Baggins, Dad, because they would associate it with me. But I still like the Lord of the Rings, so I'm like, okay, not Baggins, Dad. How about Gollum Fun? <laughs> 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 yeah, it's, it's no, nothing smart about it at all, right? But uh, Beelzebub gets me on ICQ, sends me a message. He's like, Gollum, I can make you an ID. And I'm like, you can, can you? He's like, yeah, I can make you one. I was like, well, make me one, send it over. He's like, no, I'm going to charge you $200 for it. And I'm like, like hell you are. He's like, I'm going to charge you $200, and you're going to pay it. And I'm like, dude, you're out of your fucking mind. So he's like, and he, 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 he pauses, and he was like, look, man. He said, if you're going to do this as a business, you are going to have to trust people. You have to do that. He said, so I'm going to charge you $200, and you're going to pay me the $200, and I'm going to send you that ID. And it got me so bad, I was like, You know what? And by this point, I'm friends with the people who actually own Counterfeit Library. I was like, I'll tell you what. I'm going to send you $200. That way, when you rip me off, I can get your ass booted off this website. I don't have to look at you anymore. <laughs> so I sent him $200, sent him that passport photo. Two weeks later, two weeks, I get an Indiana State driver's license. The name of Steven Schwecky was the guy's name. A real guy, worked at ADP Payroll. To this day, works at ADP Payroll. And, um, I thought that that driver's license was the prettiest thing I'd ever seen. because <laughs> it had your picture. had right? my picture, somebody else's name on it, and I was not the thing was is I was not educated on fake documents, documents at that point. I, I didn't know what was good and what wasn't. Now, looking back, that was a marginal driver's license. It was not pristine, all right. If you look at uh, if you look at driver's licenses, the way that they were created back then, in order to make a fake one, you would either have to steal, steal a real driver's license or get someone to send you a driver's license. Then you'd sit down with Photoshop, and you'd have to create a template by hand. A lot of the times you'd have to create the fonts as well, spend hours doing this, maybe a couple weeks just doing the template. All right. Then once you've got the template, what are you going to print it on? Are you going to do PVC? Well, if you do PVC, guess what? you got to have a PVC card printer. That's either a data card or a Fargo. Those are $2,500 a pop, minimum. How do you get them? Well, guess what? Both data card and Fargo know they're used for fake driver's licenses, so you have to go through all these checks, references, everything else to get the damn thing. So that's usually out for most people. Most people are not going to spend $2,500 on a printer and then try to pass the verification checks. So what they do instead, back then, you'd get a piece of Teslin. You'd go down to the art store, buy a sheet of Teslin this clear paper, You'd print the template on that, put it between two sheets of laminate, laminate it. When you when the heat hits it and it's laminated, that Teslin turns opaque, turns hard, kinda sorta maybe possibly mimics PVC, and oh. that's what they were. That's what most type driver's licenses were printed on. So the problem with that was is that you didn't have access to all 50 states. Not only that, but you've got the hologram to worry about. Back then, we didn't have multispectrum holograms, (laughs) but you still needed them. So what you'd do is you'd head your ass back to the art store, buy gold interference, and hand make a hologram that kind of sort of maybe, if you squinted properly in the dark, would kind of maybe look like multi-spec hologram. (laughs) And that was it. But all because of that, you couldn't use the same fake driver's license in the state it was issued in nothing like that and we sold those things for three hundred dollars a piece like they were going out of style so that's what he had made was this tesla id with a with a gold spec hologram everything else it was it was marginal compared to the driver's licenses of today it, it was horrible just horrible but i got that and i was i was stupid enough to think that it would pass anywhere so what do i do i load up and i use it to set up bank accounts i Launder counter and I, yeah, I launder counterfeit checks through these check cashing places, you know. So they take that, they take the driver's license, they run the driver's license, everything else. I was just stupid enough to walk in and see if it would work, and it did, uh-huh. and started doing all that. And that was uh, that's what kind of begins here is Beelzebub was making the IDs. Turned out that Mister X he made a very passable social security card because you go down to Walgreens buy this academic sketch pad. That sketch pad, it looks exactly like the background on a Social Security card. Huh. So you just cut it out, use that as a print, as print paper. So he started making that. I didn't have any knowledge at all about any of this stuff. So Beelzebub, he was like, he wanted to sell the IDs. And he was like, I'll tell you what. He said, I'll sell, Mr. X will sell. Why don't you be the reviewer? That way you get access to every single thing that comes in. You learn, learn how they work, learn what's good, everything else. And that way you can educate yourself. And I'm like, let's do it. And that was, <laughs> it was kind of like Field of Dreams for criminals. If you build, build it, it they, they will come. They will come, yep. <laughs> we started doing that, and the, the thing was, no one had ever seen anything like that. You know, you had IRC where you could talk about scams and trying to buy some identities, and it was always a failure. With Counterfeit Library, with that forum, and I talked to the owners over there, and they gave me full reign of the forum. With Counterfeit Library over there, we had a vouching system. If I if I reviewed something, people knew that I had received the product. Not only that, but my review carried weight because I Beelzebub and I had talked about it. So if I reviewed a product, if you bought from that person that I reviewed and he ripped you off, I was then responsible for reimbursing you for whatever you had lost and that's what i would do and that's that's one of the ways that i built such a strong name within that entire community and shadow not shadow crew but counterfeit library became so popular at that point that people knew they could trust the site so it, it really established this kind of trust mechanism that criminals could use they now had a place where they could engage with other criminals and not be ripped off and that's what started this entire thing that we still see today what happened to counterfeit library Funny you should ask. <laughs> so, so the thing with counterfeit library, like I said, the website itself dealt with degree mills and counterfeit counterfeit uh, um, college certificates and everything. Right. The problem was is that at that point in time, this is in the the, the late nineteen nineties, early two thousands. At that point in time, we started to see this big movement for distance learning, legitimately. You know, you had Phoenix University, you had all these other colleges that started to offer online degrees, all right? One of the big guys, one of the big proponents for that was a guy I think his name was John Ingle. He used to appear on Good Morning America talking about how how great distance learning was and everything else. Well, he gets wind of counterfeit library of them offering counterfeit degrees. He gets pissed. And what happens is, so on the forum side of things, part of the reason I was able to run that, we had a deal that I could do whatever I wanted to with that forum, but at the same time there had to be a sub-forum that was talking about degree mills, certificates, job verifications, all of that stuff. So I agreed to that. Well, John Engle didn't get mad at the credit cards and the stolen identities. What he got mad about was the degrees. So he had a huge following. He had a forum of his own with you know tens of thousands of members. He posts over on his forum about our website, about how we are destroying distance learning. His members start coming to Counterfeit Library and just doing nothing but flooding the forum so that we couldn't even conduct business. Now, what had happened before that, we had been dealing, Counterfeit Library, it specialized initially in eBay fraud, PayPal fraud, uh, fake driver's licenses, that, that degree of, of identity theft, all right, of trying to post things that you didn't have, sell them, things like that. The way that we got into credit card fraud, now Counterfeit Library had been up for maybe a year, year and a half. I didn't know it, but this guy by the name of Dmitry Golubov over in the Ukraine, he had been looking at Counterfeit Library, and he really liked what he saw. What he does is, is he calls all of his buddies in Ukraine. They call their buddies They end up having a conference, a criminal conference in Odessa, where they all meet, they talk about counterfeit library, and how they would like to build a site of their own. And that site turns out to be a site called Carter Planet, because the Ukrainians at that point had a shitload of credit card data. Script himself, that was Dmitry Golubov. He was a spammer. He was getting all this credit card information in, and he wanted to sell it. He thought he could make a living selling stolen credit card numbers. Didn't know it for sure yet, but he had a good idea that it would work. So they end up building Carter Planet. The problem was, and I talk about this a lot in in presentations today, in order for cybercrime to be successful, three things have to happen. You have to gather data. You have to commit the crime. And then you have to be able to okay, cash, cash out. it out. Yeah. If you can't put cash in pocket, you are useless in this. The problem with the Ukraine, they couldn't put cash in pocket. Every single card on the planet was shut down for the eastern block of Europe. You, even if you were le- the legitimate card owner, you could not run your card in the Ukraine or that eastern part of Europe at all. It was all shut down because of the amount of fraud that had already been hit. So Script, what he does is, is one day, he shows up on Counterfeit Library. And he makes one post, and that post is, hey, I've got credit card data. Give me a drop address, and a drop address is just an address where you can receive product. He's like, give me a drop address, give me a burner phone number, wait five business days, you can order whatever you want. Well, that right there, nobody had ever seen that before. The response from the members of Counterfeit Library was, bullshit. That's not possible, not going to happen. You, got, you have to be a cop, you're trying to send us all to prison. You're just wanting our addresses. Well, that went crazy. I mean, that went insane at that point to the part, to, to, to the point that I let it go on for over a week. And I mean, it was constant. He had tried to come on and say something. They would just bombard him. So I finally got, I was like, okay, I've had enough of this shit. Get him on ICQ. Cause that's what we all use was ICQ. Get him on ICQ. And I'm starting to talk to him. I'm like, Hey man, uh, If you're going to sell anything on Counterfeit Library, you have to be reviewed. And he's like, reviewed? What are you talking about? And I was like, look, in the United States, it's not like it is over there. If you're going to do anything for U.S. people, they have to know you're legitimate. See, Script didn't have that problem because they all physically knew everyone else on Carter Planet. But on Counterfeit Library, no one had ever met anybody else. So we had to have a review system in order to make sure everything was proper. The Ukrainians didn't need that. So Script was like, okay, review. What do I need to do? And I was like, I'll give you a drop address. I'll give you the phone number, and I'll make the order. He's like, okay, shoot. So I give him an address, give him a phone number, wait five business days, go to hitdell.com and try to hit Dell for $5,000, and the order fails. I'm like, okay, get back on ICQ. I'm like, hey, man, didn't work. He was like, give me one more chance. I'm like, okay, I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you one more chance, but if it doesn't work... That's your ass. And he was like, one more chance. I'm like, okay. So, (laughs) give him another drop address, another phone number. Wait five business days again. Meanwhile, the forum continues to go crazy. I've not told anybody I'm reviewing them. Forum continues to go crazy. Five business days later, I hit Thompson's Computer Warehouse for $4,000. Dell.com for $5,000 shipped overnight. And it arrives at that drop address. I go and post the review the same day. And that was like wildfire. That was literally overnight. We transitioned from an eBay fraud type forum to a credit card theft forum immediately. Everyone goes crazy on it because my word at that point was bond. If I said something that was a moneymaker, people went to it like just hotcakes, man. So we started doing that. Script ends up bringing not only himself doing the credit card data, he brings this guy named uh, um, Roman Vega, who went by the screen name of Boa. He, Boa sold physical credit cards and credit card dumps. So dumps are the magnetic information that goes on the stripe on the back of the card. Right. So uh, he was selling those. I became Boa's only United States seller of those things. Yeah. <laughs> and that story, I'll tell you, <laughs> just to kind of segue before we talk about how how Counterfeit Library kind of ended but i was boa's main seller the the only u.s seller that he had he gets to the point me and him are we're all friends i mean we're all friends at one point i was going on safari with these guys everything else but uh, we're all friends we're all stealing a lot of money everything else roman boa he wants to send me or he, he sends me a message one day that he wants to send me a counterfeit passport he wants to get in the passport game now I'm in Charleston South Carolina and I'm like shit man that's a money maker let's do that well I trust the guy right so I give him a drop address I was living on uh, on the Ashley River at that point in time in Charleston I give him a drop address two blocks away because I trust the guy all right empty house. It's a DHL delivery. I've got the tracking number. I know exactly what time DHL is supposed to be at that drop address. I go to the drop address. Now, as I'm, I'm driving out of the neighborhood, I pass by. DHL hasn't arrived yet, so I go down to a shopping complex to wait the 30 or 45 minutes until DHL is supposed to be there. Come back that 30 45 minutes later, at the drop address, there's probably 20 cars, police cars, parked out there. Ah. Uh, ah. Yeah. It was all set up to try to get Brett Johnson. Turns out that Roman had been arrested in Cyprus. Nobody knew it. So here I am. Oh, shit. So I, what I do, I just drive by slowly, you know, do the, do the gawking thing, and don't worry about it, and don't contact Roman anymore. A few weeks later, script tells me that Roman's been arrested. So the reason what happens with Counterfeit Library, back to that, John Engel. He starts having all of his members flood the forum. The way the, the counterfeit library forum was set up, we didn't have any moderators at all whatsoever. A guy named Seth Sanders, he was an ID maker, a fake ID maker. He made a Michigan ID, a couple others, and he was very good. He made a very competent ID. He was disgusted with credit card theft. He thought that fake IDs were an art. He wanted to just concentrate on that. He didn't want to steal money from people. So he comes to me one day, and he was like, uh, Hey, Gollum, do you mind if I go off and create a website that just deals with fake IDs? And I'm like, man, do you. Whatever you want to do, I'll send all the ID makers over there. I don't care, man. Do you. So he goes off and builds shadowcrew.com. His problem was, nobody wanted, the only way they wanted fake IDs was to support the credit cards they were stealing. Yeah, So <laughs> he gets like 60 members total to shadow crew at that point in time. Meanwhile, we're getting flooded to beat all hell on Counterfeit Library. And this lasts for four to six weeks, just constant, man. I mean, businesses being hurt, everything else.
0: Now, by being flooded, you mean that the Engel is having all of his people
1: post? fake reviews fake messages fake reviews just bombing the message board so you can't figure you can't even like the the real business links are four pages deep Hmm. because you've got the first three pages of just bullshit and that's it so (laughs) I'm getting tired of it because the, the way the forum's set up we don't have moderators Seth is over there at Shadow Crew he doesn't have any traffic whatsoever he comes back to me and he's like hey Gollum why don't you move everyone over to Shadow Crew? We've got sub forums, we've got moderators, super admins, everything like that. He said, I just, he said, I don't have any traffic. And I, look, I was like, you know what? I said, I'll tell you what. I'll move over there. You make me super admin. You give me permission to make whatever sub forums I want, put whoever I want in charge, and we'll make it happen. And he was like, done. 48 hours later, Counterfeit Libraries Forum is shut down. Everybody has migrated to Shadow Crew, and that was the beginning of Shadow Crew right there, in an organized fashion. Very organized. Yeah, because again, I was at one point, Ken. I knew I was. I had my hand in every single transaction that took place on the counterfeit library. If someone was doing business, I knew who they were doing business with, what they were buying, how much they were buying it for, everything else. Everything went through me. Uh, the problem, of course, was becoming that traffic was getting so high couldn't do it all. So I had to rely on other moderators, everything else at that point in time. But, um, yeah, it was, it was just, I got to the point, you know, today I'm concentrated on uh, being the guy that's not remembered as the guy who stole everything. I don't want to be remembered as that. I want to be the guy that turned things around. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, with me, it was, uh, that became my life. I didn't have friends. I didn't have, anything like that my friends were these other criminals because we at least associated with each other at that point well brett i'm always
0: going to remember you as the (laughs) the guy who stole things
1: oh yeah (laughs) but the guy
0: who turned things around educated me on how to keep myself safe well yeah and it's an ongoing thing
1: it is and it will
0: be ongoing through the rest of your career well you know that that's the thing is i didn't um Saving the day.
1: Saving the day. Da, and, da, da, da. <laughs> yeah. You know, with uh, with me, I didn't realize. I don't think any of us really knew what we were building at that point. We had there were problems there, and as the problems popped up, you know, the being able to trust each other. Uh, as you get big, how do you how do you scale up? So it's not just one person that does everything, but a group of people or a system. So as the problems popped up, is when we started to solve those problems. At that point, by having review systems, by having escrow systems, uh, and establishing that trust mechanism using a forum structure, things like that. So it was it was all about solving those problems as we came in. Came on, we didn't know. You know, we didn't. I don't think any one of us knew that cybercrime was going to be you know a fifty billion dollar a year industry of just committing crime. Not only that, but you've got the security professionals that, are, that make billions of dollars a year trying to combat cybercrime. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's it's really the fastest-growing crime on the planet, and it kind of started right there.
0: You know, I had, a, I had a very good friend up in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, many, many years ago. He's no longer with us. His name was Dawson Wimsat, owned a tobacco store, one of the greatest uh, cigar shops in, in the world okay. as far as I'm concerned. Had the largest inventory of Dunhill pipes. Now, that's beside <laughs> the point. But business is still business, okay? Right, right. And he had a, a, a legitimate business. He used to own a chain of crispy chicken restaurants that stretched from Indiana to Florida. <laughs>
1: so how many did he own?
0: I, I have no idea how many he owned. Okay. He, he and his wife, uh, Kay, would travel in a motorhome. Gotcha, And they would just make the rounds to all the restaurants and check them out. He told me several things uh, that, that were valuable uh, pieces of information okay. and advice over the years. One was, and this one always sticks with me, if you have a restaurant or you have any kind of business and you want to open a second location, right? open at least two more instead Ah, of one. So why? So you're forced to hire somebody else to manage because you can't manage two restaurants. You can't manage two convenience stores. So you've got to learn to trust people and you've got
1: to take the Oh, that's wild. Yeah, that's wild because we had... So you know at 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 one point like I said I was doing every single bit of business there if someone was ripped off and I would I the way I ran things on Shadow Crew not Shadow Crew but Counterfeit Library the way I ran things there like I said I vouched for someone so if a, if I vouched for someone that means I took responsibility for that person if that person goes on to rip someone off that falls back on me to reimburse anyone that that lost money and I I lived by that but at the same time <laughs> here, here's the funny thing about that If someone came in and ripped a member off, yeah, I would reimburse that person that got ripped off. But at the same time, I would go back to the person that ripped the guy off and try to get him rehabilitated and back into the community. Because my thought process was, if you can rip off one of our members, you must know something. So let's get you back in the fold. Now, if I can get you back in the fold, are you going to behave yourself at that point? And more often than not, they would. All right. But you're you're right. It kind of comes into this this chicken guy you're talking about because as we continued to grow with that, I couldn't do keep doing that. I mean, we we were dealing with so much credit card data. So many people were coming in. I mean, there were just tons and tons of new members almost on a daily basis. I mean, we were uh, at one point I think we were getting a million hits a week just on people coming in, buying, reading everything else, and you cannot. There's no way one person can handle all that traffic. So that, that's, that became this idea. As we transitioned over to Shadow Crew, my thing was is how do you delegate that? How do you get to the point where it's not just me that's reviewing everything? And to be honest with you, I was getting scared because I knew that at some point law enforcement was going to start looking. So if they start looking, it's pretty easy to figure out where I am because I'm going to give you a drop address that I'll be to pick up an item. <laughs> so I, I didn't want to keep doing that. So I'm like, "Okay, how do I delegate authority at that point?" And that that leads into what you're saying. I mean, you cannot. Once you get so big, you can't run two businesses. That's right. You can't you can't, you know, handle a million people coming into a website a week just one person. You know, nowadays you've got all these systems that do that for you, but back then it was just Brett Johnson that was doing that. So it was all about delegating.
0: So when you transitioned into Shadow Crew, you had your your minions. A lot of minions. Let's not say minions. (laughs) That that conjures uh, negative uh, connotations there. Um, Let's say you had people.
1: I had people. And I'll tell you the best. uh, Peter Taylor out of the U.K., he gave the best comparison as to what that actually ran like. So I was the head of that. But at the same time, it was kind of like a co-op. It wasn't really a corporation. It was more of a co-op. People coming in, coming out. Of course, you had the head guy that kind of oversaw everything. That was me. But really, it was more co-op type structure all the time. People would partner with people. People move in, out, everything. It was very, very flowing with everything that was going on. So what I did was is I kept thinking, okay, how do you go about, instead of me just reviewing somebody, you can have a system of reviews and what I came up with I was like okay I've already got moderators in place those moderators are with the credit forum or the ID forum or the, the fake degree forum things like that so whatever that moderator is he he or she will do the review now how do you structure the review so with credit cards what I did was is I said okay if you're selling credit card data you should have enough credit card data to be able to supply my reviewer with 20 credit card numbers. He will run those, through those 20 credit cards. If he makes money off of those 20 credit cards, he will then pay you, the seller, for that credit card data. If he doesn't make money, well, then you're not going to be selling here anyway. So that, my thought on that, and I used to say this all the time, was that if a seller, if a person is engaged in crime, he will continue to supply a product or service as long as it's viable for him to do so. Once it becomes not viable, he stops. Now not viable can be he gets arrested, he gets scared, he runs out of product, any number of things like that. Sure. But until that point, he's going to provide that service for you. And that turned out to be true except for everybody except the Nigerians of all people. They just they would have the product, they just wouldn't provide it. <clears throat> so they would they would actually pass the reviews, but then they wouldn't provide the product to people, which became insanity all of a sudden. <laughs> But other than those people, that held true, and that still holds true today. If, if you have a seller out there of credit card data, stolen identities, bank logins, PayPal logins, whatever the hell it is, drugs, he or she will continue to provide that product or service as long as it's viable for him to do that. All right? And so And that's what we understood then. That still goes on today. So that was the review system that was set up at the same time we didn't have we didn't have cryptocurrency back then we didn't have bitcoin anything else like that we had e-gold and a thing called liberty liberty reserve came online after that we tried to institute an escrow type system so that we would hold money if someone really was not trusting the seller we would say send us the money we'll hold the money for you once you get the product at that point we'll give the seller the money if you don't get the product guess what don't worry about it course the problem with that is sometimes the buyers would lie and you'd have to figure out what's going on from there but that's that's how the system ran at that point
0: well brett being your next door neighbor i mean (laughs) and i yours we've 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 developed a fast friendship in the last couple of years and this is is terrific um i enjoy chatting with you especially when we can have a little time to ourselves Uh, but there's one thing that I, I'd really like to know is while you were doing the shadow crew thing, what was your personal life like?
1: Oh, geez, Ken. <laughs> the personal life of a criminal, right? And uh, there, there really is no personal life. I mean, I was, uh, I was lying to everybody. You know, I didn't have friends because you don't have friends when you're a criminal because, you, you know, you have associates, and I was, my my time on a computer daily was 14 to 16 hours. That's how much time I was every single day, seven days a week. I was 14 to 16 hours on a computer. My wife, I was married to Susan for uh, for nine years and pretty much lied to her the entire nine. It took her three years to find out I was a criminal. The next six years were me saying, I've stopped, I will stop, I'm going to stop. Susan got to the point, she knew I was a criminal. And she liked spending the money. She, uh, she liked that. Uh, at the same time, I have to say this for her, she had a much better moral compass than I had. I didn't mind. It wasn't bothering me. I, I was able to compartmentalize everything at that point. So I didn't. I, I wasn't really concerned. I kept telling myself, I'm not stealing from people. I'm stealing from banks. I'm stealing from governments. That's how I justified it fighting the system fighting the system fighting i'm not stealing from the little man just the big guys and they can afford it was what i told myself and that was a lie of course but that's you have to justify what you're doing so um yeah my personal life it was it was filled with lies with uh, just going nowhere i mean i didn't have a personal life at all i was just worried about stealing money and one of the things i found found out going through prison the addicts, and I was an addict at that point of of crime, of being online and committing these crimes, but an addict, the only thing an addict loves is the drug. That's it. The addict cannot, and I was the same way, the addict cannot love anything but the addiction. The addiction comes first and foremost. So I put that above my wife, my family, everything else that was going on. And uh, it took me years to realize that just years to, to really un- understand and uh, accept because I kept telling myself oh I'm doing it for my wife I'm doing it for you know my family I'm doing it for all these other people but no it took years for me to understand no I did it I committed crime because I chose to commit a crime Thank you for listening to this episode of Anglerfish. I appreciate it. If you like it, please subscribe and drop me a line saying hello. Hello is always good. You can reach me direct at brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. That's Brett, B-E-R-E-T-T, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N at anglerfish, dot hcom Please tell your friends about us. Rate and review the Anglerfish podcast wherever you can. In the next few weeks, we'll be launching Season 2 of Anglerfish, which will examine the darkest corners of our online lives and what you need to do to remain safe. Please email me questions, comments, concerns, personal stories, and any topics you might like to hear discussed. That's Johnson at anglerfish.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Brett Johnson. Stay safe, stay secure, and stay vigilant.